Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is June 10th, 2010, and my guest is Scott Sumner of Bentley University. His blog is The Money Illusion. Scott, welcome back to EconTalk. Uh, thanks for inviting me, Russ. Our topic for today is growth, very broadly defined. Why do some countries do better than others? What role does public policy play in determining or affecting growth? And you've written a lot on this topic recently at your blog, and you've written a very interesting paper on the topic as well. We're interested as economists and citizens in the relation between economic policies and outcomes of various kinds. So I want to start by trying to clarify some language about how we might describe different policy regimes, different rules of the game. And inevitably, these are crude definitions because there's so much variation, but it's helpful to categorize things broadly, and you've been doing that lately. In particular, you make a distinction between different kinds of liberalism. Can you describe those? Okay. Um, I distinguish between what I call classical liberalism, uh, which is sort of a belief in small government in an economic sense, and uh, modern liberalism, which is more socialist in uh, orientation, and then neoliberalism, which I see as sort of a postmodern synthesis of the two, where it combines relatively free markets with a sizable government um, in terms of um, social welfare spending especially. So if you, if you break down government activities into two broad groups, one would be um, social welfare spending, which forms a large chunk of total government spending. And the other set of government activities is sort of a catch-all I call statism, which involves things like price controls, market entry controls, trade barriers, um, ownership of companies, um, high marginal tax rates, all sorts of things that sort of distort the free market but are not necessarily associated with um, large levels of government spending. And so in today's world, let's take a look at some different countries, and yeah, we exactly. might and we might take some thinkers as well. So let's start with the thinkers. So Adam Smith would be a, a classical liberal. Yeah, and there, there's some debate about this, but I argued that he probably would be in that category, believer in small government. He did, of course, favor some uh, roles for the government, but even in the smallest governments in the world today, uh, places like Hong Kong, the government is still substantially involved in the economy in a number of ways. So it's always a question of relative um, tendencies rather than either or. And the classical liberals weren't anarchists. It's not like they believed in, in they believed in a limited state, not a zero state. So they were they were happy That's to right. see government role in the courts, in the enforcement of property rights, police, uh, perhaps uh, fraud, uh, various forms of um, uh, of the legal system's involvement unavoidably in in the economic system in their eyes. So that's classical liberals. Um, a modern liberal would be someone like uh, – By the way, before we continue, I'd yeah. also put modern economists like Hayek and Friedman in the classical liberal. Absolutely. Class. Although Friedman would occasionally uh, go yeah. – and Hayek as well right. – would, would be 
open to various forms of redistribution uh, through the state, but it, but in the part that you call statism, the the role of the state in regulation and altering prices uh, in what we might call the nanny state, paternalism of various kinds, they weren't particularly uh, uh, eager to see the state That's involved. Right. That's right. It's a question of degree. They were probably somewhere between my definition of classical liberal and neoliberal. And I would put myself in the classical liberal camp. Uh, you can put yourself somewhere in a minute if, when we get through the rest of the definitions. So the, the classical liberals, limited state, both in terms of the size of government and its role in economic life, but not zero. Right. Um, a modern liberal would be someone like whom? Um, maybe Galbraith. Yeah. Who believed uh, both in a large amount of um, income redistribution and social insurance plus a large role for the state in um, – actually uh, regulating, perhaps owning certain enterprises, that sort of thing. Steering outcomes. Yeah. <clears throat> so, um, and that's, I associate modern liberalism with sort of a time period r- running from, you know, it started in the late 19th century, but it really got going in the Great Depression and peaked in the 1970s. And then in the late 70s, the neoliberalism era started with sort of the synthesis of the two um and what it involved is governments all over the world, and this is something I really like to emphasize, regardless of ideology, almost every country in the world substantially reduced the amount of statism, that is actual government ownership, price controls, regulation, trade barriers. Uh, almost all countries, including the Nordic countries, shar- sharply cut their top marginal tax rates on income. So these were all indications of a movement away from statism after the late 1970s towards this neoliberalism synthesis where most countries kept a fairly large uh, welfare state. I'm talking now about developed countries especially. Most of them kept uh, a large welfare state, and the, the government as a share of GDP hasn't really changed dramatically since the 1970s. But what's happened the is low. the amount of statism or interference in the markets has been reduced in most countries by quite a bit. Well, of course, it depends a lot on which, you know, which country. And I think it's important to mention uh, that inevitably we deal with very crude measures and we try to implement some of these ideas empirically. So, for example, a lot of people use the size of government as a measure of, of how involved the government is in the economy. And as you point out, a lot of what government does in the modern world in developed countries is redistribution. It's so security, it's healthcare. Although when we start to talk about healthcare, it's kind of hard to think of that as it's not pure redistribution. It involves a great deal of intervention. Exactly. So, so I'm, before we go on, I think I want to challenge you a little bit. And let's talk about the United States, and then I want to talk about uh, interesting countries like China and India, which have clearly changed a great deal. But let's stick with the United States. Clearly, uh, the United States in the late seventies had a macroeconomic crisis of sorts that called into question a lot of people's ideas about what they believed in. We had very high rates of inflation. At the same time, we had high unemployment. We had been told that was impossible. Uh, so the fact that it was happening did a, lead to some realignment and what people thought about, certainly Keynesianism. And there was also at the same time this view of uh, what we might call liberalization in the classical sense of the term, a, a reduction in the role of government. But it, it's a pretty complicated mixed bag. So I want to let you make the case because I'm a bit of a skeptic. Uh, there was certainly deregulation in the areas of transportation. Uh, trucking 
railroads, uh, air air travel were all very had strong changes in the United States. The government's role got much smaller. Um, a lot of regulatory infrastructure was dismantled in those areas. Uh, there was a lot more freedom to compete. There was more freedom to set prices. But when I look at a lot of other areas of the economy, all of, maybe a lot more important, it seems hard to contend that we moved toward a, a, a less regulatory regime. For example, in healthcare, government is, got increasingly larger in how it steered resources and prices. In the financial sector, it got increasingly involved, particularly in bailing out losers, uh, which was a huge, to me, we talked about it before in the program, a huge factor. Um, In education, government's role got dramatically larger. In areas like consumer regulation, I think about um, cigarette smoking, uh, trans fats at the both federal and local level, so many areas I see government not getting smaller. So what's the evidence that this trend is as powerful as you, as you say it is? Well, um, here I'd like to distinguish between two types of regulation. Um, one would be um, what I would call economic regulation, and the other would be things like um, health, safety, environmental, um, which also obviously are economic in a sense, but the motivation is sort of different. And I think that if you look at um, economic regulations, uh, first of all, I think the deregulation has been broader than you might think, um, it, not just transportation, but you, you mentioned banking. Banking was um, very sharply deregulated in the early 80s, you know, removal of price controls on True. interest rates and all sorts of you know, branching regulations. When I lived in Chicago, uh, banks were only allowed to have one branch, no yep. matter how large they were. I remember, those, bank in Chicago. I remember those. I remember those high was, customer service days. <laughs> uh, you mentioned healthcare. You know, um, New York removed price controls on hospitals at some point in the last few decades. Um, there were there were rent controls when I moved to Massachusetts. Those have been abolished. Um, some cities, of course, still have rent control, but um, there's. I think there's been a lot. The communications industry. The amount of. Uh, deregulation and increased competition. When I was young, basically, AT&T was almost a monopoly of the phone system. It was a very heavily regulated monopoly. So, I mean, I think in many of those ways, but what I usually point to is four primary examples of deregulation in the United, or what I would consider neoliberalism in the United States. One is the deregulation we've been talking about. A second is the sharp cut in marginal tax rates from uh, about 90% at the peak to, you know, more like 40% or so now. Uh, a third was um, a movement towards freer trade, NAFTA, you know, other trade negotiations. And a fourth was uh, welfare reform, uh, replacing it with the uh, things like the earned income tax credit, replacing sort of an open-ended um, opportunity to have welfare with the earned income tax credit. So I think these four uh, reforms were all sort of in the neoliberalism direction and were very consistent with what was happening in almost all other developed economies at the time. So it's, it's important to remember when we think about these issues that the things we were doing, like cutting marginal tax rates and deregulating airlines and um, reforming welfare and freer trade, Almost all the countries are doing the same thing, at least almost all the developed countries. Is it true that this – let's talk about the last one, the welfare part. Do you think that the social safety net, broadly defined, uh, 
has gotten more work-oriented in the developed world over the last 25 years? Well, I'm, I'm not an expert on this, but I think the countries that have pursued neoliberalism most aggressively outside the United States, like you know the Nordic countries, uh, have shifted towards systems where uh, people are increasingly encouraged to work. So there's a lot of support for you, but uh, you can't just sort of choose not to work as much as you could have 20 or 30 years ago in those countries. Okay, so the, the, that may be. Um, and by the way, those countries also have an enormous amount of uh, neoliberal reforms that we have not done. So, so I wanna, well, the I northern get, European countries are far ahead of the United States in privatization, for instance. Yeah, I want to talk about that in a second. But the, the, two, the two points I'll certainly concede is that since in the last, say, 30 years, going back to 1980, there has been a large reduction in marginal tax rates uh, across around the world and – there has been a uh, a disenchantment with with price controls, with explicit price controls. Although I would argue, again, I think in healthcare, uh, very in some very important areas, there's still lots of, of price controls. But cer- certainly, it's comforting as a as a classical liberal that as the price of gasoline has risen in the United States, there's been little demand for the price controls of of the 70s. And I think that's because people. I think Milton Friedman said it on this program. People had a bad experience with them. It didn't seem to work very well. Uh, and Friedman suggested that when people, when time enough time passes, that the people who were living in that era die off, that will, they'll become more appealing again. But l- let's put that to the side. So that I think the the two areas that we certainly see going around the world with, that have become that have been reformed are a disenchantment with with direct price controls and a reduction in marginal tax rates. Let's. I'm not sure. Well, there's one more very important one, yes. which is privatization. Yeah. So talk about privatization. Around, especially, let's talk. Let's move outside the United States and talk about some of the other nations. Well, and I was going to mention that the one problem with having the vantage point of the United States is it sort of makes us miss how big the revolution is because we already started from a more market-oriented economy than most other countries. So we didn't have a lot of government ownership. I mean, we privatized Conrail and a few other companies like that, but. Um, in other parts of the world, there was an enormous amount of government ownership, often of just sort of mainstream manufacturers like steel companies, auto companies, and so on. And even the countries that have a reputation of having not done much neoliberal reforms, like places like France and Germany, um, have done a substantial amount of privatization, even Italy. Uh, so it's that's definitely a worldwide phenomena. Um, obviously, in the former, formerly communist countries, there's been a lot of privatization as well. But it's it's been true in the developing countries, in the European countries, and former Soviet bloc, pretty much everywhere. And that might have been the single most important neoliberal reform. Um, so it's it's definitely, and it's a, it's an ongoing process. It's not something that ended with this financial crisis. Although you'll read news stories that talk about how the neoliberalism era is ending, but. Um, I would expect over the next decade there will continue to be a lot of privatization all over the world. Um, and the European countries, in many respects, have gone farther than the United States. Um, I'm not an expert in this area, but I've read many articles about how they privatize things like you know airports, air traffic control, highways, some rail lines, uh, passenger train, post office. In Sweden, you have a lot of for-profit schools popping up in K2. Through 12, you have school choice in Sweden, in uh, Holland. 
Um, water systems that are often government-owned in the United States are uh, heavily privatized. So there's just a lot of sort of go- what are thought of as traditional government services in the United States that are traditionally that are increasingly being done by private firms in uh, places like Europe. Now, one of the ways that that can be done is is through contract, and I, I guess there would be a for me at least there would be a big difference between. Uh, government contracting out for some of those services versus government opening up to a more competitive world. Of course, you can contract in competitive ways. You can contract in uncompetitive ways. That's right. Yeah. So I, part of the challenge of, of trying to measure any of this would be what we're really interested in, uh, speaking as a classical liberal, is how much economic activity is steered from the top down versus the bottom up. Uh, when the government gets out of the education business – that's a big difference than, say, a charter school system, which introduces a little more competition than in the current monopoly public school system. But it's not quite a free market in schooling. Exactly, uh, and I, I think you have, and that's why, um, you know, I think you have to go further than just charter schools, and that's why some of the European reforms, um, like the for-profit schools, are are so promising. I do, I should say this, that I agree with you that privatization per se really isn't the issue because um, if you privatize and, and, and maintain a monopoly, it, the company may be no better than before. The problem with state ownership isn't so much that the state owns the company, but that they tend to do two other things. They create barriers to entry and they subsidize the com- company yeah. and or and if you have a government-owned company, the one I usually like to cite is uh, Singapore Air, which is not subsidized and not uh, protected from competition, then it actually runs pretty much as a private company would. It, it competes as a private company. So the, the fact that it's government-owned doesn't really matter that much in that case. It would be the equivalent of uh, maybe a, a local public school having to charge uh, the full price rather than being subsidized by a property tax to make the price to the consumer zero. Right. And, you know, one of the things that's driving the, the privatization in, in Western Europe is the whole European Union project. And um, I know a lot of Americans, uh, especially uh, uh, sort of free market-leaning Americans, are skeptical of the European Union. Uh, but one of the nice things about it is that they've encouraged this idea of a, of a level playing field. And what's that, what that has done is forced countries to uh, cut back on the amount of protection and subsidy they provided to their own um, domestic champions. And uh, this has made the European Union somewhat more of a free market economy. Yeah. There's still a lot of flaws, obviously. Well, the trade they issue, pushed them in that direction. The trade issue that you talked about earlier that you mentioned in passing, you know, America in 1980, 85 is a pretty free trade, pretty free trade country. We still had thousands of tariffs and quotas, but they were relatively low compared yeah. to what they'd been decades before. They had fallen in the post-World War II modernization of, of GATT and other mm-hmm. other changes. But the rest of the world was a much less free trade. So they have made much bigger strides, I think, than we have. I think a lot of what we've done is uh, has been disappointing, but we started at a pretty free trade level. And, and you're right in making a distinction that if you're a country – in Europe that now has open more open borders, even just with the rest of Europe, you can see some economic impact that's going to be fairly dramatic. Yeah, and, and they also have um, opened their borders quite a bit to the rest of the world. I, I don't know the most recent data, but 
you know, and it, 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 it sort of varies country by country. There's, there can be subtle, you know, pairs. The, the Northern European countries have a reputation of being a little bit more free trade oriented than the Southern European countries, even though theoretically they all have the same common tariff wall. Um, so, so what, you know, there are regional variations. But um, I think it, it's fair to say that the U.S. is probably not the most free trade um, economy of the developed countries anymore. So let's talk about some of the misconceptions people have about policy regimes around the world. Yeah, a good place to start would probably be the Nordic countries. Yeah, because we think of them as, as sort of socialist models. We, th- we think of Sweden and, and Norway and Finland and Denmark as being, well, they're basically socialist, and yet that's not quite true. In fact, um, Denmark might be the most perfect example of neoliberalism. Uh, I talk about it quite a bit in, in my paper. It, it's it's number one in a lot of interesting and seemingly unrelated categories. And um, uh, so one that I'll talk about is uh, the distinction between statism and social insurance. Um, by some um, surveys, Denmark has the most equal distribution of income in the world, and it has a very large government sector. Uh, although, it, like every other country, it reduced its marginal tax rates at the high end quite a bit. But it has a very high overall tax level and a very large government sector. But in terms of the rest of the economy, it's surprisingly free market. And um, I know that uh, you know we've talked about the fact that uh, the various rankings of economic freedom are, are kind of dubious. But for what it's worth, if you take, for instance, the Heritage Foundation, which has you know 10 categories, uh, two of them involve size of government, taxes and government spending. If you take the other eight categories that involve a lot of things like free trade, regulation, property rights, and so on, Denmark is actually the most free market economy in the world in those other eight categories. So I found that kind of interesting. Do you know offhand what those other eight, you said regulation? Oh, I'm sorry, I don't have that That's in front of me. It involves things like um, courts and property rights, um, Trade, um, price controls. Um, well, uh, that's okay. And another measure of how free an economy would be would be how easy it is to start a business. Uh, you know, those of us outside of of who don't travel a lot, don't start a lot of businesses around the world, we don't. We have a vague idea of how hard it is or easy it is to start a business. Hernando de Soto is done a lot of interesting work on the bureaucratic barriers to entrepreneurship around the world. Of course, there's corruption, which is often a measure that's used in these freedom indices. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if I want to start a business in Norway or Denmark, is it hard or easy compared to, say, the United States? Do you have any idea? I think it's probably fairly easy. I mean, I think the U.S. score is pretty high in that regard, too. It does. It's fairly um, easy. I mean, the, the one criticism I've heard um, of the – uh, Heritage Foundation's rankings is that what they call economic freedom is to some extent what should be called uh, good governance. Yeah. Uh, a blogger named Stats Guy made this uh, point in a recent post. And good governments involve low levels of corruption, transparency, you know, level playing field, those sorts of things, uh, not having to pay a lot of bribes to start a business. And so um, a lot of that is being picked up in these free market rankings. And so it isn't so much that the governments are small, but that they're uh, that they function very well, and that's what uh, the Nordic countries tend to excel in. And, and actually, throughout the world, 
that sort of economic policy regime does seem to be correlated with various surveys of corruption levels. So countries that have low levels of corruption um, tend to have, first of all, relatively free markets according to these rankings, but especially in these areas that involve good governance. Um, you know, things like transparency, um, ease of starting business. And they also tend to have, you know, fairly low uh, trade barriers and um, other interventions of that sort. Yeah, now, now of course, there's a, a strong cultural aspect of this that we'll, we'll get to. Uh, but but I, before I forget, I, I want to tell a story because I think it illustrates this uh, point extremely well. Um, Former dean of the Washington University Business School, Bob Virgil, told me the story was in Egypt, and he went to the tomb of Anwar Sadat. Sadat uh, had uh, signed a peace treaty with Israel, and he was he was assassinated. And there's a memorial in his honor, and that memorial has a guard, uh, a Egyptian soldier on guard, maybe more than one. And uh, when Bob Virgil was there visiting, uh, he the guard asked. Bob, if he wanted to have his picture taken, and Bob said, that'd be great, because Bob had a camera with him, but he was alone, I think. So the guard took Bob's picture, and then he put his hand out for a donation, contribution, whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it. Yeah. And uh, Bob was kind of taken aback as an American, you know, going to, the, say, the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier at Arlington Cemetery and having an American uh, soldier ask for uh, money for doing you a favor is just unimaginable. Yeah. In the rest of the world, it's par for the course. It's that's just the cultural norm that's there, for whatever reason. So, these cultural norms, for example, about oh, getting a, a form expedited in the United States, if you're trying to start a business and you want to hurry things along, you usually don't slip a guy a twenty. But in other parts of the world, you probably do. And in a way, that's just a if, as long as you know that. It's just a cost of doing it just seems you know, it's not just right. a transfer. But of course there's some uncertainty about it. Sometimes there's negotiation that slows the process down. Uh sometimes people exploit it in ways that are not so attractive. Um so I think cultural when we talk about good governance, um it's not so much, oh, we only have four forms to fill out and they have uh they have eight. Sometimes it's just the underlying way that people interact with each other, the level of trust, the expectations that people have that probably have a very big and unseen impact on how easy it is to get stuff done. Right. And, and you know, I think that I was sort of influenced by some other studies that looked at this, and they, uh, one term they use is um, civic-mindedness or civic virtue. And um, there's, a, there's a lot of interesting surveys that have been done all over the world asking people questions like, here's one, under what circumstances is one justified in accepting government benefits to which one is not entitled? Mm-hmm. In other words, is it okay to cheat the government? Because it's only the government. Yeah. You know, you're, not, you're not really unemployed or you're not really, you don't really have the requirements for welfare, but you take the check anyway. Right. Now, if you look at – I did a study that looked at 32 developed countries – and if you look at at those thirty two, um, uh, Denmark actually comes in second on the list in terms of being uh, most honest or least likely to say it's okay to steal from the government. And they come in number one on uh, surveys of corruption that are done by Transparency International. That they're the least corrupt. Yeah. 
So if you average the two surveys, Denmark is by far uh, the most honest. And interestingly, on both of those, very different surveys. One is where you ask people, is it okay to cheat the government? And the second is a more uh, sort of an outsider's view of the country, Transparency International. Greece came in dead last. Hmm. And of course, Greece has been recently embroiled in a controversy over the fact that they are apparently cooking their books on the the budget situation, yeah. you know. And um, then if you look at, you know, neoliberalism, uh, you know, I talked about the uh, eight categories I looked at for um, statism. Denmark is the most neoliberal country of the 32. Greece is the on, least neoliberal. On the statism dimension, meaning yeah, they're the statism, sort of... The, the eight categories outside of size of government. So putting aside about. the size of the welfare state, if you look at all the other interventions of the government... Denmark does the least of those interventions, Greece the most of these 32 countries. So, you know, it, and if you do statistical tests, there's strong correlations throughout. So there does seem to be a, a pattern here where countries that uh, people are fairly civic-minded um, and have a sense of we're all in this together uh, end up with governments that are more neoliberal and um those where perhaps people are less likely to trust those outside the family and, and don't feel there's anything wrong with um, taking benefits from the government. Uh, maybe they view the government as sort of the enemy. Whatever the attitudes are, you end up with more statist regime, regimes in those countries. But, and this is a very important point I want to emphasize, I'm not really arguing that these cultural differences are in any sense innate or uh, immovable. Objects, and I'll give you sort of a counterexample to to that. Um, if you look at East Asia, um, there are big differences in levels of corruption, even among countries with fairly similar uh, ethnic backgrounds. Like on my list, there were two Chinese majority countries: Singapore, which ranks fourth in the world on lack of corruption or honesty, and Taiwan, way down at 27 out of 32. So two countries in East Asia, both Chinese predominantly, with vastly different levels of corruption. So government policy, I think, can make a difference even beyond um, the cultural values that people bring to the table. Of course, table. You know, the biggest challenge is what happens down on the ground, right? So I always think of this story I read in, um, in, in Bill Easterly where he talks about spending more on education – didn't produce the results, anti-poverty results that reformers had hoped for. Mm -hmm. So they spent a lot of money. They built all these schools, and it turned out the teachers didn't show up. Now, you could pay them to show up, but if they don't teach when they're there, you still haven't gotten to the outcome you're hoping for. So certainly, if you're in a culture that you feel guilty taking money and not showing up or taking money and showing up and not doing a good job – it's good. It's better to be in a culture where people feel guilty about that, and you don't have to constantly incentivize them and monitor them, et cetera. Right. So th there's no doubt that those cultural factors make a difference, and changing the what appear to be the rules of the game may not actually change the rules of the game. Do you know what I'm saying? Exactly. And you know, an another side of that is that the other part of government, the the, the welfare state part works better in a high-trust society. Uh, a couple of, I believe, French economists, um, Augen and Kuhak, I think, 
did a study where they looked at this, and again, they, they focused on Denmark, which has a very generous social insurance for the unemployed. And obviously, if people say that, you know, I would never take a benefit to which I'm not entitled, it's easier to make that kind of social insurance system work on a sort of voluntary basis. In uh, countries closer to the Mediterranean, where uh, the public exhibits less civic-minded attitudes, instead of offering a lot of uh, social insurance to the unemployed or, or large unemployment benefits, they tend to have uh, barriers to firing people. Right. So it's very hard to fire workers. That's the way they protect them. So the, the Danish system, which is called flex security, and combines sort of the flexibility of the free market with the security of fairly high social insurance. And there is a real question as to whether that system would work outside of Denmark where civic attitudes are different, or would it be abused? Yeah, no, that's, that is, I think, the one of the things I hope uh, comes out of this conversation for those of you out there listening is how hard it is to hold other things constant. Uh, when any people, whenever people talk about what works or doesn't work or correlations between this and that, you always should be asking, you know, what's the? Is there a third factor, an underlying factor that's causing both of these, so that I can't just uh, switch this lever from on to off or off to on and get the changes that I see in other countries where it's switched in that in that exactly. direction. And you know, the other thing that I would emphasize is that there's there's two senses in which culture might make it impossible to institute certain kinds of reforms. One is it might be hard to simply get the reforms passed through your legislature because of your culture. And the second is, if you could impose them, say, by a dictator, they may not work because of different cultural values. Do you right. see that distinction? Yeah, absolutely. And That's kind so, of what I'm getting at, I think. For instance, you know, my own views is I prefer a model somewhere between neoliberalism and classical liberalism, and I talk a lot about uh, Singapore. And... Um, one of the things that people sort of debate with me on that is they say, well, Singapore is a very different country, you know, from the United States that, that wouldn't work uh, here and so on. And I think that there's really two questions that are tied up there. One is, could we actually get those reforms enacted in our Congress? And I agree there's a lot of doubt that we could do that. The second is, if we could, would they work? And on the second point, I actually think they would work in the United States if we could get them enacted. On the other hand, if we could enact the Danish reforms here, I'm not sure they would work even if they got through Congress because uh, people might take advantage of the system more than they do in Denmark. Do you see that distinction? Absolutely. And I, and I think, absolutely. And I think you know, one of the things that people used to say in the, in the 80s and 90s about Say Japan's success when a lot of people say, "Oh, there's who we ought to be emulate. They're who we ought to be emulating." Or, or the Scandinavian countries was that uh, you know they have a very homogenous uh, population, right. which you know some people use as an excuse for to explain why they were successful, even though they weren't so free market. Um, others would say, "Well, yeah, it works for them. It wouldn't work for us. There'd be we don't have that that cohesiveness. They're smaller, et cetera, et cetera." Um, I want to ask you something, though, before we go on. And what I want to turn to after this is the sort of broad brush empirical conclusions people are drawing and fighting over in the 1980s and beyond that you wrote about recently. But before I get there, I want to ask you a question about marginal tax rates. Mm -hmm. um, I think if you'd asked 
economists in um, – oh, let me not ask it that way. Let me ask it more simply. Can you disentangle – can you make a distinction between statism and high marginal tax rates, which you um, – I think you want to do? So it's obviously the case that you can raise any amount of money that you're going to raise in all kinds of different ways. You can raise it through uh, high marginal tax rates versus lower marginal tax rates. You could raise it through a sales tax, a value-added tax. There are all kinds of different roles the tax system can play in raising in particular, holding the amount of money that needs to be raised or the one is going to be raised constant. Is it the case that as government gets larger, even when it's mainly redistributive, as it might be in the Scandinavian countries that we're talking about, that the high tax burden, let's forget the marginal part of it, just the high tax burden, does that play any role in economics um, yeah, that, I think, other, I think than, it, other than the standard supply side? Because I think it does, and I want to hear your thoughts first. Yeah, I mean, I think it does. And, um, you know, in my view, that's why a country like Switzerland is wealthier than Denmark and Sweden, is that it has a smaller government, smaller, lower taxes, um, and the United States for that matter. But, I mean, the U.S. is obviously different in many ways, whereas Switzerland is another small, you know, European country. Um, but I think there's two points here with marginal tax rates. One is just sort of the overall size of the tax burden. And if you have a very large government sector, say 50% of GDP, inevitably, no matter how well you set up your taxes, you're going to have inefficiencies, uh, distortions created by those taxes. It's going to discourage people from working and so on. But in addition to that, you can also set up your tax system in a very inefficient way for any given amount of revenue. So, for instance, um, the countries that raise the most revenue, places in Northern Europe, tend to actually have fairly efficient tax systems given the amount of revenue they have to raise. And by that I mean they don't have 90% tax rates on work. They don't have heavy taxes on capital. In fact, their taxes on uh, capital tend to be lower than the United States. I think in most cases they have lower corporate tax rates. Some of them have no capital gains tax. Some have no inheritance tax. It, it, it depends country by country. But on the whole, what, what those countries do is they tend to tax work and consumption very, very heavily, uh, but don't have uh, very punitive tax rates at the very high end, which you know run into the Laffer curve problem. And they don't tend to have heavy taxes on capital, which would reduce investment and growth in the long run. So they sort of they make the best of a bad situation by raising a lot of revenue with as efficient a tax system as they can. Well, let me ask a different version of this issue or raise a different version. One of the things that I've always thought was the strength of the United States is that because we've had low marginal tax rates, we, still, we have a pretty high average burden, not relative to all other countries, but – pretty high. And as you say, it's fairly constant. It stayed until recently in the low 20s, right? It's about the federal – I'm talking about the federal, federal government. It's about 20 percent. Probably uh, low 30s for total. Yep. So, yeah. so still, but relative to those European states, still relatively low. But because we have low marginal rates, um, we don't have a – the progressivity has been narrowed a bit uh, since the 80s. We, we, let, we let people in the United States get fabulously rich. Uh, it's true the government takes a big chunk of it if you earn it in particular ways, but you can get fabulously rich in the United States, and we we let you lose all your money as well if you invest in really bad things, unless you're in a 
large financial institution, in which case sometimes you get special treatment. But generally, entrepreneurs who roll the dice and do a good job get really, 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 really rich. They do send a large check to the United States Treasury on a quarterly basis, an annual basis, but they get a lot left over. They're allowed to keep it. There's no, there's no ceiling on that. And that, in turn, creates um, something that the United States has that very few other countries have, which is a very strong venture capital market. That is a market where individuals are steering uh, capital, economic resources, with a high level of risk and a high level of return. Uh, Very risky and very innovative and very uncertain, and a lot of them go broke, and we say too bad, and if they succeed, you get really rich. On that as well, you can add to your pile. What advantage, if any, and I think it does provide an advantage, but what do you think advantage that provides the United States relative to these other countries where the private sector is relatively small and that kind of innovation, I don't think it happens in those other countries. Uh, how are they succeeding without that, if I'm right, or am I well, wrong? Uh, a couple points. Um, first of all, I think that I would I would disagree slightly with that. I think some of the smaller, more neoliberal um, Western European countries do have a lot of that. But since they're small, it doesn't. It's not as noticeable. I'm thinking here of Switzerland and the Nordic countries, which do actually, you know, for their size, have a surprising number of billionaires and extremely wealthy people, and have uh, some very small, successful, you know, high tech firms and and so on, and. Uh, and actually some large multinational companies as well. But, um, yeah, I mean, if you look at Silicon Valley, uh, you know, there's nothing really comparable, I guess, in the larger European countries. And I think that if you ask why are they successful, one answer is that they're not as successful as the United States. I mean, their their per capita incomes are um, below our levels by usually about 20 25% if you adjust for cost of living. And I think, you know, part of that difference is due to some of these factors you're talking about. We're, more, we're a more entrepreneurial country. Um, but, you know, there's, there's lots of parts of the economy and, and many things that are less entrepreneurial, they do as well or better than us. You know, probably the German car companies are better than ours. So their overall level is, is still around 75 or 80 percent of the United States. But the reason they fall short has to do partly with the entrepreneurial high-tech sectors, and perhaps partly because we're less regulated in, um, you know, companies like Walmart can get up and going across the United States, I think, more easily than in uh, smaller, more regulated economies. So, you know, there's a variety of reasons that explain the income differences, but, and of course, we we work longer hours here. Yes, uh, which is very important. Partly because the tax and subsidy rates are different. We shouldn't just talk about tax rates, by the way. It isn't just taxes. It's taxes combined with subsidies. Uh, because the, the money that's taxed doesn't disappear. It goes back to people, partly people that are not working. Yeah, so true. it's that combination, really, of taxes and subsidies that probably explains quite a bit of the fact that hours worked in European countries are lower, typically, than in the United States. And Ed Prescott's done... A lot of interesting work on that. Right. And, I mean, it's not the only factor, but I think it's, it's certainly an important one. It's interesting, um, it's interesting you mentioned Walmart. I mean, in, in the 1980s, uh, when people were telling us we ought to emulate Japan, 
one of the things that always I found strange about that was that the Japan Japanese retail sector is extremely protected. There's very little competition. Uh, the government is is very protective of of some special interests there, and the United States has this reputation of being a much more freewheeling and competitive world, which I think it is. But it's interesting how now that Walmart's become so successful, what an adventure it is for Walmart to open a store. Uh, I live in Montgomery County, Maryland, uh, and in Montgomery County, if you want to open a store of a certain size, and there's a cutoff in square feet, if, if it's larger than a certain amount, uh, you need a special permit. It's not enough to get the regular permit from the city council, the county council. You've got to get a special permit. It only applies really to two stores, uh, Super Wegmans and Super Walmart, uh, these very large footprint stores. And as a result, we don't have any, I don't think, in Montgomery yeah. County. Because uh, if you're a business, you're trying to decide whether to make this investment. There's a lot of uncertainty whether you're going to get the approval. Um, it's a, it's a, amazing how many things like that there are in America that aren't what we think of as free enterprise. Well, right. And it's, you know, Walmart is, is successful probably in the more conservative parts of the country. You know, there's, I think there's two areas that don't like Walmart. I, th- I guess cities like Chicago have not allowed them because the, the union workers and maybe some of the less efficient stores are worried about yeah, losing jobs. Grocery chains. And then, you know, so what you might call the snobby elite liberal areas of the country look down on Walmart a little bit or maybe have some political objections to the yep. company. And Coast. so, you know, there's, there's that. I mean, even fast food restaurants are hard to open in cities like Cambridge, Massachusetts, near where I live. And so, so there's definitely regional differences. But, you know, in most of the United States, Walmart is, is welcomed. Yeah, no, that's true. Uh, let's turn to this question that you raised on your blog, um, try to pull together some of the issues we've been talking about. And let me set it up this way. What I find fascinating about the blogosphere and the political debates that we're going to be having over the next 5, 10, 20 years about the role of government is how hard it is to have a rigorous discussion and how easy it is to ex post construct a narrative that conforms to your worldview. So, for example, uh, if you believe that the world has gotten much more free market since 1980, which you are somewhat sympathetic to, mm-hmm. then you see the success of the 1980s as and 90s and 2000s until recently as evidence that the Neoliberalism, for example, is good for economic growth. Uh, but there are people who take the other there's – there's four quadrants, right? You can say that we've gotten – government's gotten larger since 1980, and that explains why the growth rate's so mediocre. Or, right? So it's very difficult to have a, a, a thoughtful and, and provocative uh, conversation on this. You wrote that right. starting around 1980 in the, in the name – of uh, neoliberal reform, uh, I'm going I'm to read your post. You said, suppose you had gotten a room full of economists together in 1980 and made the following predictions. Over the next 20 years, the U.S. would grow as fast as Japan and faster than Europe, measured in GDP per capita, correcting for differences in, in uh, purchasing power. Two, over the next 28 years, Britain would overtake Germany and France in GDP per capita, and you would be making those predictions because you thought Thatcher and Reagan's policies would be a success. Your predictions and the rationale would have been met with laughter. So you'd have been seen as some sort of right-wing kook if in 1980 you said this revolution that Reagan and Thatcher are leading in their respective countries 
is going to lead to really great economic success. And yet, there was great economic success, correct? Yeah, and I mean, one of the things that, you know, modern liberals, even modern sort of sensible liberals, now here I'm talking about liberalism in the, in the sense of left of center. Yes. Uh, they tend to forget how much things have changed since the 1970s. So some of the younger ones will, will say, you know, well, of course we don't believe, you know, government should run auto companies and steel mills and so on. And of course, you know, we don't believe in across-the-board price controls. But many liberals did believe in those things in the 1970s. We did have across-the-board price controls at various times in the 70s, widely supported by liberal economists. Um, Industrial policy. textbook predicted Russia would overtake the U.S. Uh, in per capita GDP. I mean, you know, there, the, the idea that, that free markets would produce more rapid economic growth was considered pretty eccentric. Uh, Milton Friedman was viewed as somewhat of a crackpot back then by most, or I shouldn't say most, many liberal economists. I, I was in school that yeah. I remember at, at Chicago, I mean at uh, Wisconsin, where I was studying, he was definitely viewed as being very eccentric and almost like a crackpot. Yeah. And and so, you know, a lot of ideas that have gradually been accepted and are part of sort of the neoliberal consensus really um, have only become accepted in the last few decades, and people have forgotten that. And so I think that, you know, there really has been a very successful transformation in people's attitudes in a number of areas. Now, if you're a, a pure libertarian, you can still look at the United States today and and even the whole world today and be very depressed because you see baby. government, you know, involved in lots and lots of areas. But, you know, I, I like to take the long view, and um, it's certainly... From my perception, the world is much more free market oriented than it was back in the 70s. And it isn't just my subjective view. Any of the rankings that I've seen, for what they're worth, also show almost every single country moving that direction. I Don't quote me on this, but I think one list I looked at, I could only find four countries that got more statist after 1980 out of you know 100 to 200 countries. So, I mean, it's, it has been a worldwide trend, and... and um, but, you know, at the time, um, a large number of British economists signed a letter basically saying Thatcher's policies were going to fail. And, um, you know, the, the British economy was in horrible shape back in 1979. It was almost a basket case. And so things have really uh, turned around in that country. And, and now I think people just sort of absorb that and, and they look at, uh, areas where neoliberal reforms haven't worked as well or haven't been tried or have been tried only half-heartedly and haven't produced miracles. And you see a lot of articles suggesting um, neoliberalism has been a failure. If I could just, can I read one quote from yeah, Krugman? Sure. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Uh, Latin Americans are the most disillusioned. This is Krugman from a few years back. Uh, through much of the 1990s, they bought into the Washington Consensus, which we should note came from Clinton administration officials as well as from Wall Street economists and conservative think tanks, which said that privatization, deregulation, and free trade would lead to economic takeoff. Instead, growth remained sluggish, inequality increased, and the region was stuck, struck by a series of economic crises. Now, what I find interesting about this quotation is that if you, again, look at the rankings, there's really one country in Latin America that stands out as aggressively pursuing uh, neoliberal reforms, and that's, of course, Chile. And um, 
again, it, if you look at any of these rankings, it, it ranks much, much higher than the others in the, in the Heritage Foundation. Chile is the 10th most free market, and the only other Latin American country in the top 30 is St. Lucia. So Massive you've economy. got one country that has done far more in terms of neoliberal reforms than the others in Latin America, and it's also had an economic uh, level of economic success that really stands out from the rest of the continent. It was recently, I think, granted status of developed economy by, I believe it was OECD, I'm not sure. Um, and it back in 1980, its per capita income was barely half of Argentina's, and now it's about equal to Argentina. So, you know, it's been a real big economic success, but other countries have tried neoliberal reforms uh, more half-heartedly, and, and many of them haven't done particularly well in Latin America. But I, I think if you really take a close look around the world and, and compare likes with likes, countries that are fairly similar to each other in, in different respects, um, usually the more neoliberal policy regime does produce better results. Well, what would the what would the uh, opponents of neoliberalism answer? What would well, be some will point to um, they'll they'll come up with examples that I think they misinterpret. One common example is talked about is China, which which ranks very low on the Heritage Foundation ranking. It's it's a very mixed economy, um, and China is obviously growing very rapidly. But I would point to a, a few facts there. First of all, China is still very poor, much poorer than Mexico. Much of the growth is coming from the fact that it's become much more free market than it was under Mao. In fact, under Mao, it was almost completely non-free market. It was sort of like what North Korea is today. And uh, during the last three decades, it's moved to sort of a half-and-half, half-communist, half-capitalist system. And it's not surprising that they've grown a lot from an extremely low level. But they're still a fairly poor economy. Second of all, I would point to the fact that the parts of East Asia that are Chinese and are more capitalist, like Taiwan and Hong Kong and Singapore, are obviously much richer than mainland China. And even more relevant, I think, is that within China, the more free market provinces, like Zhejiang, are the richest, and the more statist ones, like those in the Northeast or Manchuria, tend to be laggards. So um, I think just like pointing to one country and saying, aha, China's got a lot of state involvement, and it's growing fast, is really a gross oversimplification. And you have to really make relevant comparisons over time between countries and even between regions within a country to see what the net effect is of neoliberal reforms. Well, I thought what was most fascinating about the debate that ensued after what you had written was people pointing out that, well... Yes, maybe the U.S. became uh, more free market after 1980, but the 1980 growth rates and the 1990 growth rates were very inferior to the 1960s, say. And the 60s, of course, were – there's a whole separate issue, by the way, of income inequality, which I think I'm, I'm gonna, we'll get to maybe in passing. But let's just look at growth rates, uh, average growth rates. So people would say, well, the 60s, you know, we had the Great Society. We had a very active government. Those were the golden years. Uh, some people even include the 50s in the golden years, which is to me a really bad stretch. But they'll say those were – we did much better then than we were in this more free market world when government – we did better when government had a heavier hand. And you make the point, which I think is extremely – you just never hear it, that the whole world sort of – not sort of. The whole world slowed down 
uh, at the end of the 1970s. This was not – you can't just compare America before and after this, this watershed date. You have to compare it also to the rest of the world. Yeah, and, and uh, um, many, many countries slowed dramatically. Um, if you look, for instance, at Western Europe, um, some of the countries that didn't reform very much, like Italy and Greece, their, their growth rates slowed from, I think, around 7% to like 2% in recent decades. Now, what's interesting about the United States and Britain is we've actually slowed much less than a lot of the more statist developed economies. We've, you know, the growth slowed a little bit in the United States, but not dramatically. And, 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 Europe, and Brit, Britain is a better comparison because Britain is a country that was sort of catching up like a lot of European countries. And people will point to the fact that, okay, Europe, grew fast after World War II. That was a catch-up so period, so it was normal for it to slow down. But what, what was interesting is that Britain had actually fallen behind places like France, Germany, and Italy. And then when it did a much more aggressive reform program, it again caught up and surpassed them in per capita GDP. So, I mean, when you make those comparisons, I think they're more meaningful. And it's also revealing the few countries that didn't slow after the 70s were places like China, and it's not hard to explain why China went from a rigid communist system to a more, you know, half market oriented one. So um, I think if you if you look at these on a more case by case basis and make the relevant comparisons, the net effect is that um, growth slowed less in the countries that reformed more vigorously on average. You know, I mean, me- I wouldn't say neoliberal reforms worked in every single case. You know, the results in New Zealand, I think, have been kind of disappointing. But in, in the majority of cases, the, the more aggressive reformers, I think, have done pretty well. I just want to mention in passing something that, that we should at least talk to uh, briefly, which is the uh, informal sector. Uh, one of the things that's going to show up in measured Chinese numbers is when you have massive migration from a rural area to the cities, your measured economic growth is going to go up a lot just because a lot of what was happening economically wasn't being counted. And similarly, I meant to mention this before, I think in a lot of these high-tax countries in Europe, uh, the black market underground tax-free sector is also, particularly in Italy and maybe in some – and I think in the Scandinavian countries as well, there's a a lot of barter uh, where people are doing stuff or off the books – uh, to avoid those high tax rates. And that's okay. And yeah. it's probably not, it's going to show up in the economic data very different ways depending on the form it takes. Now, I think that Italy has start, started trying to estimate the underground economy. And they've, I think they've put some estimates into their GDP numbers. Um, I don't know whether they're in the official ones or yeah, not. Yeah, just, you know, I th- again, I think one of the. But yeah, that's a good point. And um, one of the things that's happened in Europe is. They talk about all the extra leisure time, uh, but uh, someone pointed out that one thing that's going on is that people are substituting home production for production at work. Mm-hmm. So because of the high tax wedge, you can save a lot of money in many cases doing things yourself, yeah. you know, painting your own house or you know that sort of thing. And it comes back and, to the, the point about what you measure is hard to know what you're actually measuring, right? And you call right. it hours of work versus leisure just because you're not – in an office doesn't mean you're hanging around doing nothing. Right. And so what may be happening is not so much that, that Europeans are working 
a lot less or as much less as they appear to be, but that they're substituting this home production. So the real problem with the tax rates may be more of an inefficiency thing where instead of getting special the advantages of specialization, you're going back to sort of a do-it-yourself yeah. culture, which, which you know, obviously reduces efficiency because you're less specialized at the tasks you're doing. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that, that's, that's one interesting take on that question. Um, let me give but, you let me, let me give you my um, pet theory about the transition in the eighties that I don't hear about and get your reaction to it. Um, as you point out, there was a slowdown either in the rate of growth or in some places actually went from positive to negative uh, in the late seventies. And one of the things, so the question is, you know, what was the cause of that? Um, and there's lots of discussion. A lot of people blame high oil prices, which I find very uncompelling, although it's true that our economies were more dependent on energy maybe in those days than they are now. But we've had lots of increases in oil prices recently that didn't have much of an effect at all. So right. I think that's yeah, a hard no, – I, I think oil is very overrated. It's, it's a hard sell. The thing I point to that no one seems to talk about is demographics. What happened in the 1970s all over the world was an – of dramatic increase in divorce. So the number of households increased much faster than population. There was a social challenge of people suddenly finding themselves in the workplace who hadn't been there before, typically women. There were a number of people who had planned on not going into the workplace who now had a set of skills that they had not planned on, on having to use. Um, the measured data just from the fact that the number of households changed, when you look at data measured in household terms rather than per capita terms, gets distorted. Uh, when you look at, say, the bottom quintile, because there are now people in that quintile suddenly who were there in the data before but now are in, in their own household. Um, exactly. And so you, know, this, you know what? And by the way, I think this, this was mainly driven by – well, I don't need to go into what it was driven by. But there's no doubt that around the world there was an enormous – demographic, cultural challenge, and response. And it's not surprising to change the growth rates independent of economic policy. Right. And, you know, one of the most misleading um, economic statistics out there are the income distribution data. The quintiles don't measure what people visualize. When you see the data and you see the bottom quintile, you think, oh, those are the poor people. And the top quintile, you think, uh, those are the rich people. And that's absolutely not correct. Those are, to a very great extent, measuring people at different stages in their life. You know, I, I, I lived probably in the bottom quintile for about eight years as a young adult, and yet I wasn't in any sort of economic sense poor. I was a young, middle-class person. Yes, On the other investing. hand, there are poor people who are in the second quintile who maybe make um, you know 30,000 a year and are taking care of a family in an expensive urban area and you know that probably puts them I would guess into the second quintile but in a socioeconomic sense they're poor and then there are people in the top quintile like a Boston cop that makes over 100,000 a year that that aren't really what you think of as a wealthy american or maybe a nurse that makes 100,000 a year so what we think of in terms of class what we visualize in our mind in terms of different classes and what show up in those quintiles are really two very different things. Well, the problem I have is when they make the comparison between 
a quintile in 1975 and a quintile in 2000, right. and as if they were the same people. Exactly, and there's more of these, um, like, again, when I was young, so there's people with extended adolescence, if you will, making low incomes well up in their 20s who are actually middle-class type people, you know, come from middle-class family, well-educated. And they have a high lifetime standard of living. It just isn't at a point in time. Yeah. Or and you, you just can't compare someone who's a, you know, um, well-educated person who's in their 20s and working at, you know, Borders Bookstore for a year, making 20000 to another family that's a, you know, Hispanic immigrant with kids working as a roofer making 20000 trying to raise a family. You well, know, the, roof- the guy working at Borders is single, say. Well, the good they're news- completely different classes in the way we think of class, and yet they may have the same monetary income. Uh, except that roofer's making a lot more than 20000 yeah, I have a that's, feeling. that's right. I mean, <laughs> and he could be into this, the second quintile yeah. even and still be considered relatively low income. Most of the top quintile, the 80 to 100%, almost all of it is what most Americans would regard as middle class. If you met these people saw their income, saw their job, you'd think that's a middle-class person. Probably only the top 1% to 5% would be considered really affluent. Well, the, a lot of those folks in that top quintile are living in high cost-of-living areas like the major, major American cities like Boston, New right. York, L.A., Chicago. They have very high housing costs, very high education costs if they send their kids to a private school, and their actual access to resources is, is very distorted by those prices, obviously. Right. Yeah, the real estate prices get bid up to reflect the yeah. amenities, and so, yeah. so yeah. The, the, and this is uh, some people have pointed this out that the the uh, cost of living uh, for the wealthy arguably has risen faster than for the lower income groups because the lower income groups have benefited from sort of the Walmart phenomena, and the wealthier people are competing for. All Status. these goods like, you know, homes near the ocean and, you know, other specialized products that have risen in price more rapidly. Yeah, John, so. John, not my colleague John and I wrote a, lot, a very nice essay on that. We'll, we'll put up as a, as a link. Uh, yeah. So we're, we're almost out of time. Do you want to close with um, – want to summarize what you think, what you think we know? I, I, again, I'm, a, as most of our listeners know, a big skeptic on the ability to make um, precise statements about these – Correlate connection, uh, connections, causal connections between these large, very difficult to measure economic variables. What do you think we've learned uh, that's going to stand the test of time about uh, growth and economic policy? Uh, what have we okay, learned? Well, maybe, maybe if you'll allow me, I'll, I'll mention what I think is the most interesting finding in my research. I'll try to mention it briefly. Go for it. I found that between 1980 and uh, 2005. The countries that reformed fastest, that moved most rapidly away from statism, were countries that had the sort of most civic-minded attitude, according to these two surveys I mentioned earlier, uh, having to do with you know attitudes towards corruption and so on. Mm-hmm. So um, what I argued is that what happened in the middle of the 20th century was that the Great Depression sort of discredited capitalism. And idealistic people all over the world became more socialist in their view about what would be the best policy. And then, starting in the late 70s, attitudes switched again, not completely away from socialism, but away from the statist part of it, still holding on to the social insurance. And when attitudes started to shift towards free market economics after the late 70s, 
the countries that reformed most quickly were those that were the sort of the most idealistic in a sense. And that's because in the less idealistic or civic-minded countries, powerful special interest groups that earned economic rents from various sorts of government interventions didn't want to let go of those interventions. And so they reformed much more slowly. And I, I did, and, and I think that's, to me, the most interesting finding in my research. I mean, it's, it's easy to find just correlations at a point in time between all sorts of variables, and there could be any number of reasons. But what I found is if you looked at how idealistic countries are, that also explained the rate of change in their um, reform process between 1980 and 2005. So the places that reformed fastest, like New Zealand and Denmark, were those with the most idealistic values. And that suggests to me that the, the narrative you hear in the press, that neoliberalism is some sort of right-wing plot, is, is completely wrong. We have to sort of look beyond ideology here and recognize there was actually a sea change in people's attitudes towards markets, and that in areas that were the most idealistic, and indeed you could almost say the most liberal in the broad sense of the term liberalism, were those areas that moved towards markets most rapidly. So um, that's why I... I don't agree with the popular left-wing um, theme that um, this is all sort of a right-wing conspiracy by capital to, you know, expropriate more money from the workers. Um, I just don't think the data supports that at all. My guest today has been Scott Sumner. Scott, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.